Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live has been here frequently, and I love listening to her talk as much as I enjoy reading her words as they come out on paper. Her other books include Angels and Insects, The Matisse Stories, Possession, which won the Booker Prize in 1990, and her new book is called A Whistling Woman, which is the fourth of her fictional quartet about English life from the early 1950s to 1970, which includes The Virgin in the Garden, Still Life, and Babel Tower. Will you please welcome A.S. Byatt to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming to the, the broadcast and uh, for uh, finishing the quartet. Was, it, was this a, uh, a daunting task to write the fourth of this long book, taking, crossing over 20 decades of British intellectual and emotional and social history? It was quite frightening. And once I had embarked on trying to write a series of four novels, I, I thought you were a lunatic woman. All you've done is hung a very large stone round your neck and removed the possibility of writing anything spontaneous from your next 40 or 50 years, I thought to myself. But in fact, I have written other things in between writing the quartet. I, I wrote Possession in between two volumes of it, and that gave me a sense that I hadn't put myself into a straitjacket. Um, and then I thought very hard about whether I would finish it with three books or with four, as I realized I was a lot older than I had hoped to be when I <laughs> came to the end of it. Um, and then I thought, no, come on. It, it, if there's one thing I can't do, it's read other people's unfinished novels. I've never read Dickens's unfinished novel. And I thought, this is a, actually a work, and I would like to finish it. So I took a run at it and finished it, and I feel amazed. And you feel amazed. Well, you begin the, the novel with a story that doesn't end where people want it to end. You begin the novel with sort of an ending that isn't quite right for people. I mean, that must have been one of the ideas that haunted you then. Yes, it was, and I thought, how do I begin the fourth volume and make it absolutely clear that this book is the end? And um, I've had, <laughs> I had the character Agatha, who was telling this fairy story to various children all the way through Babel Town. Little bits of the fairy story kept cropping up like little squares in the quilt as the story went along. And so I thought, if I start a whistling woman with the end of Agatha's fairy story. And in fact, Agatha ends it very, very abruptly, just at the moment where all the things the children want to know are not told to them. And the children become completely hysterical and enraged and bang their mothers with their fists and weep and say, this, is, this isn't an end, this isn't an end. There's all sorts of things we don't know. And in a way, I wanted to prefigure the fact that n nothing really has an end except something like King Lear, where everybody dies in a heap <laughs> on the stage. Um, that's fine. Or Hamlet, where even more people die in a heap. Um, but if you're writing comedy, the end is very artificial and arbitrary, always. Well, you have some people die in a heap at different points in the book, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's also a book that's about beginnings, and even whether, uh, whether it's... Uh, 
a couple coming together and about sex, even though they imagine also that here is the beginning of, of the end and the end, the end, the end. There's, there's a, a, a quality that you're always dealing with beginnings and ends that, that come into this story. Yes, I, um, the kind of book I don't like is the kind that takes... I, I don't really love Sons and Lovers for that reason. It takes its hero through all sorts of experiences and ends those experiences with the death of his mother and then leaves him sort of naked in front of a completely unknown future. And I do leave at least one of my main characters sort of striding out towards a very unexpected and uncertain future. But I didn't want her to be in that kind of almost cliched position that a lot of the novels of the 30s left people in. You've, you round the experience off, but not the character. I, I wanted to round all the books off. And to that extent, the new beginning of sort of discovering some new lover or some new job, I gave as many people as I could do. It's, uh, it was a lot of characters to, to keep going and moving and to keep track of and move. You're uh, grimacing. Um, this is the very worst thing. People occasionally ask me, what is the worst thing? The worst thing is the chronology. The worst thing is realizing that you've got a span of about 20 years and you work out what happens to all the people psychologically, you know, for a certain length of time, this person is in love with so-and-so and then they realize that this isn't going to do and they have to change lovers. In the interim, somebody else hasn't been doing anything, and you think, well, now I'll start on him. And you realize that he was actually doing a PhD, and you can't just change his life like that, because he would have had to finish the PhD, and that takes three years, which is not the length of time. That, and then you have to go back. I, I draw diagrams all over my very large notebooks of just where everybody was at what point. That is much the worst, the triumph. And of course, it, it causes, it, it works backwards as well because um, the chronology changes the plot. Once you have to think of something for somebody to do for three years, you get quite interested in what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then everything shifts a little bit. It, it's, ra it's rather exciting once, once you feel you might beat it. Every now and then I sit down and cry because I think I've got myself in a corner. <laughs> but that's the pleasure of being a novelist. You can write yourself out of the corner. Yes, I mostly plan myself out of the corner. If I, if I find I've actually done a lot of writing and got in a corner, I really despair. It's quite important, if you possibly can, to hit the corner before you start writing. <laughs> one, of, one of your characters, as Agatha, early on, early on, sort of sums up the book for me in a way, that, 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 that she was trying to find in life for herself a way to both flourish with the life of the mind and to have sex. Yeah. I, I think there was a third item in there, but... Uh. Um, I think that... Um, well, there's children, of course. Um, I think all my characters didn't want to be pushed into either being thinking people or being feeling people almost all of them wish to have a life of the mind to which they wish to give as much attention as their mind will take. And equally, they don't wish this to mean, as it meant to most of the women of the generation before my own, that they have chosen to be a kind of nun, that they will not have sex, that they will not have children, that they will not have people in their worlds. Um, and it, 
I think it I think it was more of a problem for women, but I don't think it's not a problem for men. I think there is a real problem balancing the life of the mind. And you have characters that, that go through those kinds of, of dilemmas. It, part of the, the history of, of England in this is that you show the influence of Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook, of the coming of television, the music of the Beatles, the, the awareness of of different ways that the human consciousness and the, and the chemistry of the brain works. And you weave all of this in. There must have been a, a great sort of uh, feast of, of, of material from which to choose. Well, it, it was very wonderful because, of course, I lived through all that in the state of sort of half-consciousness and preoccupation with how to get the dinner on the table when you hadn't finished writing your lecture on Middlemarch, that, um, that everybody's life was like. And I don't think I actually realized until I started working in the 1990s the mind-blowing fact, for instance, that color television came to Britain in 1968. And color television in itself, the nature of color, was a kind of psychedelic experience. It changed the way we all looked at everything. Before that, we had these little black and white sets, very small, in the corner, mostly with Muffin the Mule sort of prancing about on strings. Um, and then suddenly we had much bigger screens and we had bright color, and, and I was sort of drunk on it. I mean, I, I used it to sort of pretend that I understood LSD because <laughs> <laughs> it was almost as good. Let's turn the vertical control a little bit. <laughs> well, well, you can do it. You can do all sorts of things with it. And then I, it took me a very long time to work out what to do with um, Frederica. I don't like calling her my heroine, but the, the sort of woman who has pushed and shoved her way through all four volumes. And it was important to me, in a silly sort of way, that she should not become a writer, because it was important to me that she should not be my alter ego. And Carmen Khalil, the founder of the Virago Press, who was once my editor, said, well, she could become a very famous high-powered journalist. And I thought about that, and it, that wasn't right either. She, she, for one thing, like me, she hadn't enough social consciousness. Um, and then I suddenly realized that what she actually became was a very clever television presenter. Um, and there was, in the 60s in Britain, a possibility of really inventive, high-powered intellectual television shows with all sorts of exciting dialogue about all sorts of things going on simultaneously. So I invented this new show, which she was the compare of. The, uh, called Through the Looking Glass. Yes, it was called Through the Looking Glass, and it did things I think the television ought to do and doesn't do, which was mix up genres. It wasn't news commentary, and it wasn't the arts, and it wasn't the sciences, which, after all, the television isn't. The television is like a bookstore, or ought to be, in which everything jostles. And so Frederica sits there through the looking glass, having perceptual psychologists arguing with psychoanalysts, and she has a program on free women based on Doris Lessing's Golden Notebook. And, um, and they talk about almost anything. And I, I quite like that. I wish that still happened. And you, you find in the course of this, in which you have real people, people this, this show, uh, that it actually changes the viewer's consciousness. Uh, in one of the characters, uh, Jacqueline is watching one of the shows, and it works at her at a time when she's discovered she's pregnant, at the time she's facing a choice about marriage, life, career. 
Well, of course, this is also true. I, I think I realized after I decided that Frederica would be a television hostess just how much that would get into everybody's life. And she tends to float across the screen at very difficult points of people's lives. Usually, I mean, it is her nature to make people very angry, and she makes Jacqueline very angry, and then she floats into the snail geneticist's life and makes him even more angry, um, because she's always very sure she's right at any given moment when she's speaking. And then she invites the vice-chancellor's ch maniacal astrological wife to come on the television and talk about astrology. And the vice-chancellor sits there alone in his living room, agitatedly watching his wife saying dreadful th in his view, things. He's a good man and a liberal man, and if his wife wishes to talk about astrology on the television, then she must be allowed to do so. So he simply suffers. But uh, he doesn't like Frederica very much either by then. <laughs> it's, a, it's, an in, it's, a, it's, a, it's an engaging uh, plot device. There's a, um, a way in which the names of the characters always sort of seem so distinctive in your books. And you must spend a lot of time trying to f come up with the, the right name. Saskia, a, a woman's name. Uh, Tano, short for Ath Athansius. Uh, uh, I mean, these are not sort of usual names. A, a man who's, who's, whose last name is, uh, is it Lysander Peacock? Luke Lysgar Peacock. Peacock, you know, which has its, its name going back. But it weaves in these themes of the natural world with the human. Um, when I started it, when I started the whole quartet, I thought exactly the opposite. I thought I shall have some characters with perfectly ordinary names to which no associations can be made. So I called them Potter. I called Frederica's father Bill Potter. I thought that is an ordinary English name with absolutely no associations. And then because of the way my mind works, it began to acquire associations. And by the end of the book, I had rushed rather to the opposite extreme. And I wanted Luke Liscard Peacock. He was called Peacock for a reason to do with alchemy in Jung and the, the magical stone, the philosopher's stone goes through um, the tale of the peacock in which there are all the colors before it takes on the pure white light. Then I realized that was quite nice because it fits with Darwin's idea that the, male, that the tail of the male peacock is a completely irrelevant, horrible male appendage which has no evolutionary use that Darwin could think of. And he said he felt sick every time he saw one. So um, <laughs> this sort of took on a maleness. And then I thought, I'll call him Luke because it must be connected to Lux Lucas, the Latin for light. So I said to my Danish translator, I'm going to call him Luke because he's half Danish. And my Danish translator said, that has no connection whatsoever with light. It just is St. Luke, which comes from somewhere else. <laughs> and he said, there's a perfectly ordinary Danish name, Liesgaard, which actually means a garden of light, an enclosed space with light in it. And I was completely enchanted by this beautiful Scandinavian word. And so my poor character managed to end up being called Luke Liesgaard Peacock. And, and so you cooked up then the story that the, the wife, if she was going to, to travel with her husband uh, to Norway, needed to have her name permanently attached to the husband's. 
Yes, that was one of those dreadful things novelists have to do, working backwards from a given fact and inventing a reason for how it got like that. And in fact, up until almost the final draft, there were at least two reasons how he got to be called that, and I've got one of them out in proof. So, so uh, Potter being sort of that ordinary English name, do you think J.K. Rowling used Potter as kind of an homage to your quartet? I had, n I had never thought of that. Um, because she dealt with the Sorcerer's Stone and... Uh, I don't think she probably... Philosophers. Um, what I would like to say is that um, Agatha, who wrote the fairest story with which A Whistling Woman opens, I had planned in about 1980 that she would write a fairest story which would be make her a millionaire almost with nobody noticing. I was rather upset when J.K. Rowling, appe <laughs> Rowling appeared on the scene because... I, I had invented her, uh, and, um, uh, and there she was. I, I was really thinking about Tolkien not being able to find a publisher mm. and self-publishing and therefore raking in all the money um, that he made. And I thought, I, I mean, I thought in the 1950s when I was a student, if I was really sensible, I would sit down and write one of those because I could. And then I would make a lot of money, I thought, because there's a hunger for more Tolkien and there isn't any more Tolkien. Um, so you wanted to write kind of a sequel to Tolkien, in a way? No, I want, I, it had to be, as J.K. Rowling managed to do, something quite different, but which appealed to the readers who needed the Tolkien, who needed, as it were, a mythic landscape in which the forces of good and evil... I don't like real children in books. I prefer real mythic landscapes, you know... Um, the person I really love is Terry Pratchett mm. after Tolkien. I, I, he's my real comfort reading. His whole disc world? Uh, world. Yes, I, I love his disc world. I love I, he doesn't seem to be so loved over here. Um, I think it's because he's got an English dry humor that, that is purely English. It's rather like Alice in Wonderland. Um, and at the same time, he really does have a mythic imagination. He, he does create other worlds and other creatures. I'd like to, to hear uh, a passage here from uh, A Whistling Woman, and this is where Luke is uh, trying to seduce Jacqueline with a, with a meal. He's showing off his culinary skills that had heretofore been hidden. Ah, uh, yes. He's doing it in a, in a Yorkshire cottage he owns where he goes to watch snails. Um, this, is, this is part of his scientific interest. Yeah. Um, it's easy to watching snails because they don't go very fast. Um, later, Luke was to wish he had not introduced this apparently safe subject, um, which is the subject of egg recognition in seagulls. Um, he went round to offer Jacqueline more meat on the point of his stainless steel fork and saw himself suddenly as a male gull, clattering his beak against the female, proffering a propitiatory fish. Jacqueline declined the meat. She had enough. She said it was delicious. Luke cleared away. He would not let her move, and replaced meat with cheese and cheese with lemon tarts he had made himself. During this time, they talked, neutrally and amiably, about Professor Wine-Noble's conference and the increasing size of the anti-university encampment. Luke began to be tormented by a series of inner visions, 
male birds strutting and bowing with worms, with gobbets of flesh, with wriggling silvery fish and eels, waving rumps, distended throat balloons, perky crests, flushed sticklebacks and cuttlefish across whose sack-like bodies played lights of successive blushes in successive waves of crimson and rose, amber and cool blue. He saw the blue booby, a bird he had once observed for a time, descending from a wintry sky, rotating its only remarkable feature, huge, flat, bright, swimming pool blue feet, and offering its desired mate a symbolic twig to make a nest on land where no nest could be made and where eggs were balanced in inclinations in bare rock. He offered Jacqueline a dish of apples and thought of the bower bird, who specialised in feathers from a bird of paradise known as the King of Saxony. The feathers are rare, they don't grow before the bird is four years old, and brilliant blue with square pennants on fine stems, several times longer than the bird and sprouting from its brow. Male bower birds fight for these rarities, which they weave into their paradise gardens of ferns and twigs. He began to see all his movements as ritualized gestures. He should have been able to share the joke with Jacqueline, but because she was now ritually defined as the audience for his mopping and mowing, he couldn't speak. She refused the apples. She had had, she said, more than enough. It had been delicious. He poured red wine accompanied by the ghost of a solicitor's albatross. She accepted the wine with a neat little inclination of her head. She made the rational decision that it would be a good idea to be a little drunk. She was aware that something was bothering Luke, but could not quite guess what, and again felt that the pattern of their dance required her not to ask. She did notice that he had arranged things so that he was constantly in motion along the table and round the kitchen. She wished his plan allowed her to move herself. She wished to be able to follow his lead. That was what this was about. She sipped wine, thinking of the alcohol gently fuddling her overactive head. When Luke was at his far end of the table, he looked like the old, familiar, too familiar Luke. As he came dancing towards her with his offerings, his bearded face passed from pool to pool of light to pool of light, from candlelight to island of lamplight. When these fiery lights were under his face, he looked unfamiliar. He looked demonic. <laughs> Recent research, she remembered, had shown that children raised together on the kibbutzim to be good husbands and wives for each other had seemed somehow to share the primitive incest taboo although they were quite unrelated. They had turned outwards for husbands and wives. She thought about arranged marriages, the quite different fears and hopes and excitements there must be when the chosen mate was the unknown. She was trying to arrange her own marriage on rational grounds. These thoughts, too, she could not communicate to Luke. Bedtime came. Luke said, Shall we go upstairs? Jacqueline nodded. This is just a weekend, said Luke. I, I don't expect it necessarily to lead to anything. I, I hope, of course, but I want to take it step by step. Jacqueline nodded. <laughs> a scene from A Whistling Woman by A.S. Bayek. 
So, so in that passage, I mean, you, there's, there's, uh, there's Jung, there's psychology, there's mating, there's, there's some of what I think the book is about, which is also the mating of language and the bringing together of words and, and, and language to create uh, new scenes. And, you, and you, you play with words and how words have been formed by coming together in, in, in ways throughout linguistic history. It's a, it's a work of, of the mind, but it's also a work about the passion and the mysterious ways that bodies and sperms and eggs eventually do come together, regardless of the species. Um, it is. It's, um, I, I'd, forgotten, I'd forgotten it until I started reading it out. It was, um, it was partly also you know, about mental imagery the things that go through your head when you're having a perfectly ordinary conversation in, in fact, rather stilted language. Nothing they actually say is other than quite banal and boring. And yet, here is this man with his head totally full of bowerbirds and peacocks and albatrosses and fish and swimming pools. Um, I particularly liked having got my um, simile for the feet of the bowerbird, which are not the bowerbird, the um, the blue booby, which actually does have feet that are exactly that kind of aquamarine blue, that of swimming pools, and it's a it's a ludicrous bird. Well, there's a scene also in in in, in bed where begin he begins imagining snails as part of the copulatory act. Yes, and of course snails. Um, I was very fortunate to form a friendship early in the writing of the last novel with Steve Jones, the um, geneticist who, whose favorite subject is the snail and whose, the basement of whose house is full of snails partially frozen in bags which he will bring out and allow to crawl over his desk and who has a collection, I think, of now 4,000 model snails. Anyway, so I know a lot about snails and one of the things about snails is that they are hermaphrodite. And Steve says they jostle for position as to which shall take which role when they come together. And a, a further curious thing about them is they have a thing called a love dart, which is made out of um, Shelley stuff, which they, at the moment of final copulation, they stab into the other snail. And Steve said he thought that this was for... Um, the snail that was going to lay the eggs absorbs the calcium also from the love dart to help the eggs to have the shells. You can see it's not very sensible to be thinking about this when you're making love to somebody. <laughs> Even if she is a woman who was once your student and shared your snail research. <laughs> somebody wrote me a very angry letter. Um, I can't remember from where, but it, she wasn't British, saying that recent research had disproved this theory about the snail's love dart. And <laughs> she, it wasn't for that at all. <laughs> so I wrote, I, I asked Stephen, he said, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> and so the love dart, I mean, that's the snail's own terminology for this. God knows what the snail thinks it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's... Um, I sometimes look at them looking at you at the end of the eyes on the end of the stalks, and you have to realize that that's what they're actually looking at you with. I discovered when I was writing, I think it was the last book, that, that spiders can have anything from sort of four to eight eyes arranged in almost anywhere as far as I can see. It's like video surveillance in Great Britain. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what... what uh, did you say that he keeps the snails in his freezer and he lets them thaw and they crawl around? I don't know how for it. He keeps them in his basement. They come up in large um, plastic bags and some can be produced, you know, for any purpose. It's an interesting kind of house pet. It would probably, for people who have allergies, it doesn't shed, you know. <laughs> uh, you know. 
No, no, it's very nice. He has, um, this, this isn't really about Steve Jones, but he has a very large desk, which is a reproduction of Hitler's desk, because his wife is a television producer and produced something in which they needed Hitler's desk. And so when you imagine these snails progressing slowly, they are progressing across Hitler's desk, which is, <laughs> is very beautiful. So as a, as a novelist sitting down and writing, I wonder what's going on in your own head that you can only, like, writing is such a linear exercise, yet there's such a simultaneity of thought that goes on. This is, this is the other big problem besides the chronology. There is a sense in which the most exciting moments of writing are when you get a multi-layered metaphor, something that means something in all different parts of your story and pulls it all together in a curious way. And connects the snails to paradise lost. I mean, I did get an apple in there, which to me was a metaphorical apple. When, when Jacqueline refused the apple, this was not Adam and Eve in paradise lost. The woman didn't want the apple. Um, but if I'd started at that point thinking about all the other apples there were throughout all the four of my novels, let alone the rest of literature, I, I would have been sunk. And I spend a, a lot of time trying to batter down the connections I think of to a number that I can manage. Otherwise, you become overrun by metaphors. Yes, I, I, my, I think, I think the, the writer I most love in the world is Coleridge. And he said that his illustrations swallowed his thesis and were like the babies on the back of the Suriname toad, in which the male, in fact, carries all the babies in little pockets of skin. And he said they jump off and go in all directions as I go along. And, and I have that sort of trouble. I recognized this when, when I first read it, which was a long time ago. Uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful image of those frogs. You know, and the, uh, so do you see your books as frogs that are out in the world now? Um, yes, I mean, one of, the, one of the really weird things about a book tour is that you are always talking about the book you're trying to forget. And I've never said that in public before. But um, it is the case that you're trying to think about the one you're trying to plan and the connections in that and the chronology that's gone wrong in that. And suddenly here is this thing which is real and out there in the world and not yours anymore. It was very nice reading that passage out because I'd forgotten it. And I suddenly remembered, like Proust with the Madeleine, I remembered exactly when and where I wrote it and what the weather was like and what I felt like trying to keep that sentence in control until I got to the end of it. And I suddenly felt, you know, okay, this book's finished. And where, where and when were you? Um, I was sitting on a terrace in a very small house I have in France, and it was a high wind. I was trying to hold the papers down. I, I have a large stone ammonite, which I use to hold the pieces down that I've actually written, because I write with a pen, as opposed to um, all the pieces I'm trying to write on, which I hold down with the hand. I'm, I suddenly had a sort of mental image of all this weather chaos as I was reading it out. It was very strange kind of the way Luke's and Jacqueline's minds are working. Absolutely. The book is called A Whistling Woman, published by Knopf, A.S. Byatt, also author of Possession. Thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.